Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve J. so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Hey, this is Mick Jones of Foreigner, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Today we're going to speak with one of the directors of a wonderful rock doc on a band that had just a huge influence on me and my group of friends going back to junior high school. The Ballad of Matha Hoople celebrates this legendary band, so I welcome Chris Hall. It's a mighty long way down rock and roll indeed. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Definitely. I was so psyched years ago when I found this movie. Um, you know, they're a legendary band and they had a tremendous impact on music. Everybody knows all the young dudes. And your film, to me, will be certainly definitive word on this band as far as docs go. And I'm just curious how that feels. Um, I don't know, really. I mean, I'm never 100% sure on the word definitive because it sort of only takes another person to come along and make another film. And, um, right. you know, there's there's another version of events. But, um, yeah, I mean, certainly when we made this and we, when we made anything else as well, you know, there's a sense of sort of responsibility that you've got to do the band justice. You've got to capture them while you, you know, you've got to get across what it is uh, that made them such a great band, what it was that people sort of identified with. It's a sort of honour to be able to, tell some of these stories but it comes with a responsibility that you don't want to you don't want to mess it up and and that's always that's always kind of like the target really well i don't think it's possible to make it pedestrian or dull when you interview everyone except for pete over and watts but you know that's part of the legacy is these guys you know i just looked it up because he's touring again ian hunter's 83 and you've got all of these guys telling their story which i think is just great we always want to try and tell the story from the source, really. You know, the people who you speak to were the people who were there or the people who were, like, either participants or very, very close to the story, you know, so that so that you're kind of you're telling it as, as first-hand as you can, really, you know, rather than kind of second or third generation of people talking to you about it. So, um, so that's kind of always been our, our aim. You know, we probably wouldn't have done it if we didn't have the full sort of cooperation of the band. As you say, we couldn't get, we couldn't persuade Pete Overend Watts to be in it. Um, he just didn't fancy being on camera, being in a documentary, which I kind of understand. Um, and it was a, you know, it was a shame that we didn't have him, but you just kind of have to deal with it and tell the best story that you can with the people who you've got to tell the story. Um, and obviously with pretty much everyone else in the band from the original lineup and then obviously the later lineups, with the exception of Mick Ronson, obviously, then, um, you know, we, we we had kind of like, you know, the foundation of being able to make a thorough kind of film and get everyone's viewpoint across. It's a great story. Um, I want to roll back to the beginning. And by that, I mean your beginning. Here in America, at least when I was in junior high school and stuff, it was a small clicky group who followed bands like that. Very dependent on Cree magazine, that kind of thing. Obviously, you're British. I'm not sure where you grew up there. But how did you first become aware of Mott? And, you know, how old were you? And, you know, what was the first album or song you heard and its impact on you? I mean, I'm assuming you're a big fan. Yeah, um, 
I mean, I well, I was born in 1973, so I was born, you know, only had another year to go then, really. So I think All Young Dudes is one of those songs that was always, you'd always hear it quite when I first heard that. I don't know, but it's one of those songs, you know, like a lot of the Beatles songs or something like Starman by David Bowie that you just, it's always kind of, um, it's always around. It's all, it was always on the radio, things like that, you know, so you'd, you'd hear that a lot. I think, uh, was it all the way from Memphis was in, um, Alice, uh, is it Alice doesn't live here anymore? The Scorsese film. That's like the first song on the, in the film, I think. And so I knew those two songs and then like I had a greatest hits album but it was just like the greatest hits from the you know the ones they were signed to columbia really so so that would have been sort of early early 90s when i was about like 17 18 and getting into sort of older music i guess i, I got into you know people like david Bowie, and and that kind of i guess led me further further towards uh getting into mott and i didn't really know that much about them as a band you know i mean some bands you know you sort of find out loads about as you're getting into them. So I, I was never like massively aware of them. And then sort of a bit of a leap forward. We'd made a film about Arthur Lee and Love in about 2005, uh, 2006. And we were just talking about how, what we'd do after that. What would we, you know, try and do another band? Um, and um, Mike, who I make films with, he had some connection with his sister, knew Ian Hunter from like Shrewsbury. I, I think mm. Ian lives in America, or he did live in America, but his sister knew um, like one of Ian's kids or something like that. And so we sent a copy of our Arthur Lee uh, love documentary via uh, whichever family member it was uh, to Ian and said, oh, you know, is that, no one's really ever done anything sort of substantial on, on Mott the Hoople. Is it something you'd be interested in? And he kind of like, you know, we heard back that, you know, they, they liked what we'd done, uh, the film on love. And um, it sounded like most of the rest of the band felt the same way, which was good because I think they all had, they all had like different management and things like that. So, so, you know, it was good that we could get like a, an agreement from, from all of them that they wanted to um, participate and, uh then it was like, right, okay, so we've got to do this now. Well, it's funny, too, because that that's such a huge part of the movie and the tale is the personalities of the band. You know, I mean, Buffin, I thought was great. You know, I always liked him, but hearing him tell the stories, you know, Mick Ralph's, you know, Bad Company and all that beyond that. And um, they're just all great interviews and help present Mott as more than just Ian Hunter, you know, and uh, Chris Needs uh, is also in the film. And uh, I've read a couple of books by him, but he was also the head of the Mott fan club. And he said in the movie, most bands were untouchable, but Mott almost translated the stones into something we could reach out and touch. And I find that so perfect as to their appeal, especially in the UK. What are your thoughts on that? Was that something that jumped out at you? Yeah. But one thing sort of witnessing them live was you could sort of see that kind of the power of the band and that kind of being in the same room as that music and and that sort of elemental kind of like rock and roll sound and this it had sort of real power to it you know it was genuine full-on rock and roll you know there was nothing kind of fake about it and I think live that was where they were at their best and also um for people like Chris Needs as well there was no sort of like pretension with them you know they weren't you know they'd look after their fans so they'd you know like if if 
people like Chris Needs and uh, Mick Jones and people like that who'd, you know, young lads who'd go and see them play live, you know, if they if they didn't have money for a ticket, you know, they'd they'd let them in for nothing and stuff like that and they'd make sure, you know, they looked after them and let them come backstage for a chat and they were very, very approachable. So I guess I guess that's that was kind of one of the key things and one of the key things that I think helped them build up this sort of, uh, you know, really hardcore kind of like fan base um, because not only do people like identify with them as a band, but they'd go and see them and and the band would kind of go out of their way to to treat them well. And obviously that makes a, you know, huge impression on you when you're... That age. 15, 16. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, like to see someone who you kind of, you know, witness on stage and, and for them to, to treat you well. So... And what were the real deal? You know, they were, they, you know, yourself, you know, just a great, great rock and roll band, you know. That. Definitely. And and to steal some of the lyrics from one of their songs, they were all just one of the boys and they fit in very nicely into that. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Chris Hall. He's the director of the documentary film about the legendary band Matha Hoople. You mentioned Mick Jones, and Mick Jones of The Clash is another idol of mine. And, and not surprisingly, he is a huge fan of the band. And for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned is they broke down that barrier between artist and fan and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty obvious how much he liked Mott and and also how they were very much a blueprint for punk rock, in, in my opinion. And I'm just curious, was it great interviewing Mick Jones? Because I love the guy. Yeah, no, I mean, real pleasure to sort of speak to him. And you, when you start off doing these things, you never know that you'll be able to get all the people in them that you, you know, you, that you need to speak to or that you want to speak to. But yeah, and, and really lovely and just had such kind of warm memories of um, of Mott. And I, I bumped into him um like maybe about a year or two after we'd done the filming uh, and I think we'd finished the film by that point. And, and he was talking about the gigs that they'd done at, at Hammersmith and, and he was saying like, you know, 
he he was sort of bowled over by it. You know, it was really emotional, and that's kind of inspired him to do. I think they did some gigs as um, Big Audio Dynamite. You know, that he kind of got them back together for a few gigs. Mm. But you know, they had the same thing that Mott did, where they go out of their way to treat the fans well and make sure that you know people sleep on the floor of the roadies right, hotel right. room and stuff like that. You know, so so they kind of had a similar thing. You know, where they they knew to look out for the you know, the people who'd come and watch them and stuff like that. So, but yeah, I mean, obviously Mick and The Clash, like, you know, total kind of like heroes, um, men of taste as well, obviously. I wanted to dig a little bit into the history, not deeply, but um, I learned some things about the band from your movie. It's some cool stuff. You know, Guy Stevens, who is a visionary producer, he was also a bit of a psychopath. And a lot of the people who worked with him, you know, would say, oh, he's a genius, but dot, dot, dot. I never knew that he came up with the name Matha Hoople. And the band was not together. And he sent it to his wife to save it. And he was where? Well, he was he was in prison when he kind of <laughs> dreamt up the band. But um, he was sort of renowned for his, like, you know, I'm in a great record collection and having great taste. And he was one of the first people to like import a lot of great American rock and roll records into into the UK. And he used to DJ um, at a place called The Scene in Soho. You know, he had a big influence on people like The Who and even like The Stones and would be kind of like informed of which cover versions to do and stuff like that by, by Guy Stevens. So he was kind of always probably doesn't get the credit that he should get, really. He'd, he'd been around for quite a while before Mott, and then he went to Island Records where he ran, like, the Sioux label, which, again, like, reissued, like, just loads and loads of brilliant, brilliant American records. And then he got involved, obviously, from that uh, with Island Records. He produced, like, the first free album. You know, he, he was just known as a, a, a real sort of creative genius and, and very good for names as well. You know, obviously, Mott the Hoople being... Uh, being one of them, you know, quite an offbeat character, but um, but very, very intelligent, very creative, full of brilliant ideas. Not a musician, so he couldn't fulfil his own sort of vision himself, so he'd do it through bands. So, I mean, before Mott, he put Procol Harum together, basically. You know, yeah. he put Keith Reed with the rest of the band and was a big part of um, A White Shade of Pale. Then he got busted and ended up, as that was kind of being finished and stuff like that, he was edged out of the out of the band. So while he was in prison, he read this book called Mott the Hoople and um, decided that would be a great name for a band. And then when he came out of prison, he kind of shaped them together. You know, he found he found the band and he auditioned. He didn't like the singer uh, Stan Tippins. Sort of quite fortuitously, Ian Hunter turned up for the audition for first singer and then i guess the rest is uh is history really the rest is history and he did their debut uh and they make a couple more albums and there's loads of gigs but there's no hits and of course in that day hit singles was what it was all about and then they get barred from uk gigs which i guess was their money maker what happened there um it was mainly they did a gig at the royal albert hall which is quite a nice well, it's a lovely venue. <laughs> and I think they banned, they banned rock and roll bands after Mott the Hoople turned up. I mean, Mott the Hoople has a sort of a working class fan base and the fans would go there and the gigs are pretty wild. The people going to see them would kind of go and let off steam. And I think, yeah, chairs got smashed and 
bits of the ceiling started crumbling <laughs> and things like that. So, so they got basically they got um, a rock and roll music band from the Royal Albert Hall for quite a while, which obviously good publicity for the band. But yeah, I think that I think they were still able to gig elsewhere. But Royal Albert Hall was the uh, one of the more uh, luxurious venues, and they didn't want them back after that. I wonder also, is it just me, or is the best quality footage is because the band perhaps was bigger there? But there's some incredible footage in your movie, live footage, and but I think most of the really high end stuff is British. Is that right? Um, it's a mixture, I think. There wasn't loads of footage of them in the UK. Um, like they made like the promo videos and stuff like that. I think one of the things was some black and white footage of them quite early on, um, that we used, which I think was from like an Australian TV mm. company. And then there was some stuff where they'd appeared on French TV, like in the in the quite early days. And then we got some wonderful sort of Super Eight footage of them later on, like in the sort of in the seventies. Um like the footage of them where they're, you know, David Bowie introduces them on stage and comes out uh, for the encore, uh, which was from a chap called Mike Walsh, who I think filmed them in, filmed them and lots of other bands in Philadelphia, kind of just took a Super 8 camera with him every time he went to a gig and just ended up with this, you know, wealth of like brilliant, brilliant footage, you know, it's all kind of quite handheld and shaky, obviously, but, but just wonderful kind of document of the, of the time. So, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and they were great. You know, a lot of the footage really captures them well, I think, doesn't it? I mean, definitely. You know, some, you know there's some really good footage and they look as a band visually, they're, they're really, really strong too. So. so, so was it hard to find that stuff and how did you do it? I mean, this was kind of an earlier uh, film. Did you put the word out or did people send it to you or how did you get that, that footage? can't remember someone put us on to mike walsh i think he was a guy in in america um and then and then various bits and pieces you know we just go through footage libraries and stuff like that and find out oh so-and-so has got that sometimes someone would say oh you know have you spoken to this person they might they might be aware of it and and see some of the footage libraries were were very helpful as well um and um, and they've done quite a bit. I mean, they've done like quite a few sort of TV appearances and things like that. You know, not necessarily in the UK, possibly like Europe and you know Germany, France, things like that. So so there was some really sort of strong strong footage kicking about. Um, and you know, we yeah we were lucky enough to to be able to use it in film. It was never seen over here, at least by these eyes, until your your film. So thank you for that. I think most of it probably hadn't been seen since it was first, if it was TV footage, since it was first broadcast. Yeah, early you know, 70s um, or something. Yeah, and obviously, like, nowadays, so much stuff just ends up on on YouTube. Yeah. Um, it wasn't that easy to to find that much footage of them other than, like, the promotional videos they'd done when, when they started having hit singles. So, no, so there's, there's some, you know, real sort of gems. Um, Definitely, and... and- it's interesting because at this stage, you know, they, they, they don't have hit singles. Their gigs are in trouble. Uh, Guy Stevens does another record and then walks away. And he said he never recovered from working with them. And the band doesn't know what to do. And then, hello, David Bowie. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they felt they'd sort of run out of road, really, you know. And that was, I guess, their, you know, they did break up when they were in, in Zurich in, what was it, 72, the dates on the... Uh, on the song itself, isn't it? But um, but yeah, I, I think they just felt that they weren't getting anywhere. You know, the record label had had other things going on. You know, they were they they were like had huge success with other acts, 
and Mott Hoople weren't really doing anything. So, and also Guy was Guy was able to put them together because, um, you know, because of his position within Ireland, he had such a sort of key role in establishing Ireland from, you know, and changing it from being like the. It started off as a as a sort of company putting out Jamaican reggae stuff, right. and then you know through things like Spencer Davis Group and then Traffic and and what have you became like you know a hip kind of rock and roll. As Guy became sort of his behaviour was sort of starting to become a lot more erratic. Um, he was becoming a bit marginalised at the record label, and so and so what the hoople really. So I, I think it kind of just felt like it had come to um, come to an end, and and it had. And then obviously um, David Bowie got wind of this because Overend Watts like sent him, you know, wanted to find out if he needed a bass player basically. <laughs> And boy, he was a huge fan of Mott. You know, he would have seen them quite a lot in London. Like, and he loved them. And he just said, you know, you can't you can't break up. Try this, try that. And, and that was obviously at a point where boy wasn't anything like as successful as he as he became, you know, within months, I guess. And also he would like kind of give people, he would give quite a lot of his material away at that time or get other acts and artists to uh to record it. So um so yes, yeah, so I think he offered them um Driving Saturday, I think was the first thing he offered them, and then, and then he offered them all young dudes. Um, you know, the band just thought, "Wow, you know, this is like it's perfect song for us," and it, and it was game changer. And you know, Bowie also had a big effect. You know, they went kind of from jeans and this and that to more of a glam look. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and obviously, people like Roxy Music were around at right. the time doing that as well. So, um, yeah, I guess they just kind of like moved with the times. And so they kind of altered their image a little bit and became a little bit more more glam, not quite sort of androgynous as, say, Bowie or uh, New York Dolls. But yeah, you know, but but um, but yeah, they kind of adopted the uh, the fashions of the uh, of the day, I think. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Chris Hall. He's the director of the documentary film about the legendary band Moth the Hoople. What's interesting to me, and it's along that punk rock vein, is is after that hit, which is huge, you know, there's a little bit of um, confusion in the band. What do we do next? And Bowie tells uh, Ian Hunter to take charge. Yeah. Um, and again, I guess Guy Stevens was their kind of mentor, and he was, not, he was out of the picture, really. I think Bowie took them on board and hooked them up with like main man management, his management company for a while. Once they'd done the all young dudes album boy was, you know, his own career was taking off like absolutely, you know, massively. And so I think his management just didn't have the time to deal with Mott Hoople. I mean, as well, it was at a time where, you know, as well as like his own career, boy, kind of like, you know, he did, raw power with the stooges right, he right. did um you know transformer with lou reed and he did all the all the young dudes album all kind of in the space of like like less than a year you know i mean right. quite, quite incredible really and at, at the same time you know the ziggy stardust uh thing was taking off as well so um so yes yeah, so i think again mock kind of just felt they weren't getting the attention that they needed because all the focus was on was on david and I think the other thing as well was, you know, like they had to follow up a hit with another hit, really, right. and 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 then the onus was obviously on Ian Hunter to uh, to come up with the hits and to come up with, you know, singles, which 
as you said earlier, you know, they, they didn't really do across the first four albums. You know, there'd, right. there'd be some great songs on there, but they'd be like 12 minutes long or something like that, you know. So um, so the, the sort of pressure was on Hunter to kind of come up with the goods, really. And he, you know, he did it, you know, he... he you know, I mean, I think the next single was, was it Honolulu Boogie? And then, yeah, and then all the way um, from Memphis. Yeah, you know, so incredible, really. You know, so he'd kind of, he, he cracked the, uh, the, code. the formula. Well, and, yeah. and I think also he produced that record, or the band as a whole did, which is my allusion to punk rock. And then that album cover, which is a great cover, is much more commercial looking than I think anything in their past. And, you know, all this is happening, but, you know, anybody who knows Mott knows that, you know, personnel changes are, part of the band and Mick Ralph leaves and they bring in a uh, Luther Grosvenor who's renamed Ariel Bender. Another of my favorite stories in your movie is how he got that name. Uh, well, I can paraphrase what Ian Hunter says basically, but I think that they'd done a gig where, and they were with Lindsay DePaul and they were just wound up and sort of drunk after a gig. And I think it wasn't going well. I think they were in Germany or somewhere like that. And uh, Mick Ralph's, apparently sort of in shrunken frustration ran down a whole street where there was like a whole line of parked cars like ran up and down each and every car and like bent the car aerials um just because i don't know <laughs> as as you do i guess and um and lindsay de paul had said oh aerial bender and then hunter had kind of made a mental note of that name and so then it came to bringing in luther grosvenor who had kind of a reputation because of, you know, Spooky Tooth and he did his own album as well. So I guess they thought like, oh, we'll, we'll give him another name. <laughs> and uh, uh, Luther Grosvenor became uh, Ariel Bender. Oh, and is it one of the great rock and roll, uh, one of the great rock and roll names, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I think Ian Hunter really enjoys telling that story too in the movie. Yeah, um, I think it tells it much better than I, I ever could, I think. Definitely. Of course, Bender leaves too. And of course, with the Bowie situation, who replaces him? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, Ronson comes in after the, the Lost Mick Ralphs, which obviously was a huge kind of bloke and such a great guitarist. Um, and then I, I think um, Ariel Bender comes in and he adds a bit more sort of showbiz to the stage shows, you know, so he's a bit more of a flamboyant performer. So I think their live act kind of goes up a notch when when he joins the band in, in some ways, because he's a bit more showy and he's a bit more flash. And as a spectacle, I think things, you know, he, he added a huge amount to the band, but then I think Hunter has said himself, he always kind of needed a foil in a band. He needed someone to kind of bounce off and he was good pals with uh, Mick Ronson. And I can't even remember if we put it in the film, but I remember talking to him about the song Sea Divers on the, uh, all Young Dudes album, and he's just talking about how he kind of knew what he wanted to do, explained it to, because Mick Ronson was involved in sort of the production of the record to a degree as well, uh, along with David. And um, uh, and Ronson just kind of came up with this brilliant sort of arrangement for it, explained it to the the string players and what have you, and, and you know, just did a fantastic job and one of the best Mott the Hooper songs, really. So I think obviously they knew that Mick was like, uh, uh, you know, Ronson was just like such a huge, huge talent. Since he'd stopped working with Boy, he had his solo career going, but he he didn't want to, he didn't really want to be a solo artist. He he, he preferred to be in a band. Um, and obviously at that point, um, it seemed like it seemed like the perfect fit. 
Yeah, I wanted to also mention, uh, and I think it was back with Ariel Bender, but there's that seven-night run on Broadway that had the marionettes hanging from the ceiling. And I love the Moth the Hoopa live album. That was one of the formative ones for me. And I have to say that, you know, on the cover of that, you can see the marionettes in the background. I've never seen footage of those shows until your movie, and uh, it, it was just amazing. I've got a feeling that the footage we use isn't from Broadway, not wanting to shatter any illusions. But it had the marionettes. But it, 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 yes, it was on that <laughs> tour. Yeah, yeah, you could just about make out the marionettes in the background. But yeah, it was it was on that tour. Supposedly there was a we we could never find this bit of footage, but supposedly there was like a, a you know New York kind of like local news type piece on those shows because it was obviously such a an unusual thing a band playing on Broadway. Um, I, I mean now obviously like Springsteen's done it and it's not <laughs> such a unusual thing anymore. But so yeah, so that was as I think that was as close as we got. Yeah, but yeah, again like they they'd gone quite. Um, you know they were they were throwing everything at it really to make the show as big a spectacle as uh, I think they could at that point. And speaking of throwing everything at it, as we get kind of to the downward arc of of the band, unfortunately, I mean, there are stadium gigs, there's MSG, and then Ian, and I believe it's from the hospital, as someone in the film recounts, he just says, we're done. And the tour is canceled, and the band is done. And this is, their whole career is a period of just under five years, I think. Yeah, which I guess is, in those days, it isn't a bad run, is it? <laughs> um, you know, now, like... You're just getting started. Yeah, I mean, now a band would probably do, like, if, if they were together for five years, they'd probably get, like, two albums out in that time, I think, <laughs> you know, with Mott did seven. I, I think a lot of it was to do with when they brought in Mick Ronson. I think he was kind of just eager to get on with things quite quickly. You know, he was keen to prove a point and he wanted to he wanted to get to work with them as quickly as possible. And I think Ian kind of had a similar mentality, but I think other people in the band where they'd been in the band for five years and a lot of it was, you know, hard slog, you know, they bought houses and stuff like that. And I, th I think they possibly just wanted at that point when Ronson joined, they didn't have the same sort of motivation to get on and do things quickly as, as, uh, as Ronson did. So that was causing quite a lot of stress. There was a situation where Ronson was still being still had separate management because he was he still had his solo career going so kind of formed a a crack in the in the band really that you had Ian and Mick and then the rhythm section of buffing and over and kind of started to feel quite separate from it I think and I think I don't know I think Hunter well he, he was in hospital because he kind of I think he you know due to the stress of the the situation really and, and obviously it was on him to keep on coming up with the uh Hits with the, the with the new material, you know, and and because you know him and Ronson did did obviously work in a band. It's a shame that it, it kind of didn't quite work out with with Ronson in Mock, because you know the potential was you know the sort of superstar guitarist joining a already great rock and roll band, you know, but didn't work out. Yeah, and during that sequence where they're all talking about the breakup, I couldn't help but but see kind of the disappointment maybe or surprise even but they all are kind of looking down and telling the story of the end and kind of shaking their head which you know again from a U.S. fan's perspective I was shocked and stunned and you know I have to point to uh, to Chris Needs once again um, he says in the movie and I can't say it any better I came of age with Mott they were my growing up and I owe a lot of my growing up to Mott and then when they split 
I felt like I was out on my own in the world. And I, I'm guessing, especially amongst the, the UK fans, they all felt that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was a huge, it was a huge blow and it was a huge blow to the people in the band as well. But I think, I guess the intensity of, of that lifestyle, um, you don't always make kind of like the most sound of judgments <laughs> at that time. And, you know, they didn't necessarily have like management who was, you know, people that say like, you know, go for holiday, everyone, and, you know, have a break from each other and take six months off and stuff like that, you know, which probably would have been a good idea. But then at the same time, they just brought Mick Ronson in right. and Mick Ronson doesn't want to have six months off. He just wants to kind of get on with it. And also I think, you know, when you've been in a situation where you're with the same people sort of like so much of the time every day, you know, it, it people start to annoy you and get on your nerves, <laughs> I think, don't you? You know, so so little little things kind of build up that with hindsight, I think all of them would have loved the band to stay together. I mean, but yeah, it, it's it, it's a shame it couldn't have been, you know, all the ingredients, you know, they were such a great band and Hunter is at the top of his game and, you know, Mick Ronson clearly, like, you know, they could have made some, you know, Saturday gigs is like such a great record as well, you know, that you can see that there's a real sort of like a way forward there. Let me ask you one final question, and it kind of ties all of this together in the points of their music, your film, the band and their reputation and their story. And there are probably two songs. It's it's definitely not all the young dudes, which I'd love, but um, someone in the film, and I don't recall who it was, but they said the song Saturday's Gigs was the requiem for the band. And then there's Ballad of Mata Hoople, which I always adored, and I thought that that song was the band's story. So I'm just curious, you know, uh, how, what do you think about those two songs? Um, I think they both document, sorry, I think Ian Hunter said something to the effect of once the band becomes your life and you're trying to write songs and you're looking for sort of inspiration to write about, they can't write about the stuff that they were writing before. If they wrote about what their reality was at that point, it would be less, uh, I guess, you know, it would lose something from what they had initially as well. But I think both of those songs, I mean, obviously the Ballad of Mott Hoople is the breakup of that original band. Saturday Gigs is kind of feels like the breakup of the end of the final version of, of Mott the Hoople. I mean, funnily enough, on the subject of sort of Ian's songwriting and starting to come up with the hits when after after Boy had finished, they did a tour just after they'd split up in Zurich in 72, before before they did All Young Dudes. The Ballad of Mott the Hooper was part of their set at that point, like the Rock and Roll Circus tour, which they did immediately after, you know, they were meant to be splitting up, but then Ireland had already paid to publicise the tour, so they had to do the tour and, and they thought that would be the end of it. But he'd already written the ballad of Mott the Hooper then. So that was kind of like before the Dudes album. And obviously it didn't appear on the record until until the Mott album. So so Hunter's songwriting at that point was really kind of like he was starting to, you know, be able to to get it down. I think I think he would say that he didn't know that Saturday Gigs was like a, you know, a requiem for the band. But um, you know, you you listen to it now. There is that element of kind of, you know, finality. Like, yeah, there's sort of nostalgia for what was going on down the years and stuff, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Chris. We've been speaking with Chris Hall, who is the director of the documentary film The Ballad of Mata Hoople. It's a great movie, uh, a treasure, actually. I have the DVD, which only shows how old I am. But also, where can people watch this? Is it streaming or is it still available? 
it's not streaming no you can um you can still pick up the dvd i think when we made it streaming wasn't really a thing so we didn't clear we didn't clear it for streaming basically so that was that's why and it's probably not worth us clearing stuff now to uh to stream it so it is still there's still dvds kicking about and what have you i mean much as they say the sort of dvd market is dead like if i could buy a film on dvd i still i still do really because things i think for streaming as well you know so many things will be on a platform for like a year or so and then they're not available anymore right, right. so um you know much as it's you know hugely convenient to stream these things um i still like to sort of own something as well but um but yeah obviously next time we make something um we will uh you know streaming is the way forward well especially with the dvd and i would tell everybody search it out please because it also has some brilliant reunion footage on it that is just amazing and it's it's a great movie and uh Thank you for your time and thanks for the movie. No, thank you very much for having me on and uh, it's brought back some, uh, some good memories, actually. All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.